Hello and welcome to Stars, Cells, and God, where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological, philosophical implications, as well as discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name's Jeff Swearing, and I'll be your guide as we explore the W boson and cell or transport across cell membranes. But before we get into the discussion, I want to encourage you to subscribe to our Reasons to Believe channel, click on the bell icon so you can be informed of our new videos. They release every Thursday and our website, reasons.org, is full of excellent resources on lots of topics. Learn more at reasons.org. Follow us on social media at rtb underscore official. So let's get started. So Fuzz, why don't we go ahead and start with you. You're talking about uh, transport across cell membranes, which can be boring, but I think you have something very interesting here. <laughs> yeah, so. Well, yeah, it can be boring. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, and maybe to introduce the topic, uh, I'll talk a little bit about immigration. Why not? Let's, okay. Let's hey. talk about a controversial topic. But actually, I, I don't want to uh, talk about uh, anything dealing controversially with immigration, uh, but rather the idea that I think most people might be surprised to know that thanks to the INA, which is the Immigration and Naturalization Act, that there's actually a, a, a well-developed, well-thought-out strategy for how we are going to allow people to immigrate mm -hmm. into the United States. And there's actually a set of principles uh, that are used. Uh, uh, we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can to reunite families, to keep families together. Uh, there, we admit people into the United States that would be of a benefit to our economy, uh, that we um, try to promote diversity through immigration, and then also we want to protect refugees. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that those are the, the guiding principles, well thought out, principles I think most people could agree with. We issue 675,000 permanent visas every year using these principles. And uh, uh, we also will admit people without any restriction who are family members mm -hmm. of, of people that are in the United States that are U.S. citizens, spouses, uh, parents, and, and so, so there's children. built into that an importance of family almost, it yes. sounds like. Yeah. Yes, it, it is. And and there's a cap on the number of different mm -hmm. types of visas that are given. No country can receive more than 7% right. of the visas issued every year. So there's actually a, 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 a sense of you know fairness mm -hmm. and, and a really well-thought-out set of principles that dictate uh, immigration. And the reason I bring that up is because border control is not only important for countries. Right. Uh, and having principles about how people will enter into the country, countries, but border control is also very important for cells as well, right? That cells that have nicely connected there. I like that. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. So you know, cells will actually have materials that kind of move, you know, in and out of the cell, right. and that that has to be a, a highly regulated process. And and so what I want to talk about is some new insight into a mechanism for movement of cells into into um, movement of, of uh, sorry, materials into cells across cell membranes uh, that highlights the high, how highly regulated and fine-tuned that process is for something known as passive diffusion. All right, and so we'll, we'll explain what that is in a minute. But what is responsible for the cell's border control is the cell membrane. And this is a cartoon showing just a small segment of the cell membrane. And you see pretty elaborate structure. When oh, you it's get very complex. It. it is a very complex structure, and it consists of a, of a matrix that is made up of, of two sheets of molecules uh, that are each called monolayers, and so mm -hmm. it's called a bilayer structure. And that um, the bilayer is made up of these smaller molecules called lipids that kind of laterally align with each other, 
to form a sheet, and then the tails of one uh, monolayer interact with the tails of the, the other monolayer to kind of have a, a kind of an opposite orientation to each of the monolayers. But that's so. Is that like a chemical bond, or is it more kind of physical interaction that uh, kind of holds them together? Physical interaction. Physical interaction. Yes. Okay. Uh, uh, it's essentially the hydrophobic effect. And then embedded in the membranes are these larger structures that are called proteins. And the specific composition of proteins in a membrane gives its, its, its the membrane's functional mm -hmm. properties. Now, when it comes to moving materials across a membrane, there are three broad mechanisms that you see. One of them on the right is called active transport. This is a, these are proteins that will literally move materials from one side of the membrane to the other, oftentimes against the gradient, against the okay. concentration gradient, which means it's an energy-intensive process mm -hmm. uh, for that transport. Another, uh, and it's a highly selective process where only certain materials recognized by that transporter will be moved across the membrane. There are also pores in the membrane that will allow materials to move through the pores in a line with the concentration gradient. So this is a this doesn't. This process doesn't expend any energy. And, and so that's just you got you know things move from high concentration to low concentration, and this facility. This is the the two on the left are that sort, whereas the one on the right is actually increasing the concentration. Right. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And, but the pores are highly selective, so there's a selectivity to to mm -hmm. this particular process. So it's called facilitated diffusion. Okay. Then the other process is essentially passive diffusion where materials that are low molecular weight can just simply dissolve into the membrane and pass through the membrane. And this, of course, will go according to the concentration gradient. And it turns out that not all molecules will enter in the cell this way. Gases will, uh, and, and materials that are hydrophobic, that are water insoluble. Sometimes small polar molecules can move through the membrane this way. But larger polar molecules and charged molecules will be repelled by the membrane. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the matrix or the bilayer is actually semi-permeable. Okay. So then the, the, the question is, how does this process actually work? How does passive uh, diffusion work? And this has actually become really a very important question because we're now looking at genetically engineering yeast or bacteria like E. coli to produce small molecular weight materials that mm. would have medical or industrial use. So these uh, organisms are being used as bioreactors. Right. And the hope is that, hey, if these material or these, sorry, these cells can produce certain materials that can just simply diffuse out of the cytoplasm across the membrane into the, mm. into the, you know, into the media, that we could actually purify the materials uh, directly from the media without having to go through any kind of other elaborate process to access the materials that the cells produce. So people are now really very interested in understanding passive diffusion. And um, as it turns out that the models for passive diffusion are breaking down, they're, they, they're, they're, they're not making accurate predictions. And so this research team from Germany said, we really need to understand what is actually regulating the process of passive diffusion. And again, that passive diffusion is being regulated by essentially the, the matrix of the membrane. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the materials that make up the membrane's matrix are, again, lipid molecules. And many of them are of a particular type that are called phospholipids, where there's a head group. that's This is just shown in cartoon form. 
that is water soluble and tails that are water insoluble. So when you add these materials to water, the tails try to avoid the water, the head groups interact with the water, and this forces kind of this bilayer structure. Right. And um, when you, you look at the chemical composition of the head group, it typically consists of uh, something called a phosphate uh, moiety that's attached to a glycerol molecule. And that phosphate can have an, usually an amino alcohol of some sort bound to it. And so there's about five or six different head groups that, that, you, that will exist in cell membranes. And then you have these hydrocarbon chains, these tails, uh, that are, again, water insoluble. And those tails can vary in terms of length or degree of saturation. Uh, and, and so you have a, a chemically rich and chemically diverse composition of the, of the, of the phospholipid bilayer. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a slide showing, <coughs> again, the <coughs> hydrocarbon chains that are attached to the glycerol backbone uh, through a carboxylic acid uh, functional group. And this you is- know, it, It's kind of fascinating watching that because, you know, things that, you know, stuff that wants to avoid water, stuff that wants to gather water, there's, there's kind of built into the physics, if you will, a mechanism for making these layers. Yep. I, I find that pretty fascinating. Yep. So. Yeah, well, and I talk about that uh, actually in some detail in my latest book, Fit for a Purpose, right. about how, how there's this, the, the, the laws of physics seem to be constraining mm -hmm. and dictating the structure of cell membranes. Um, but this is a, a diagram just showing the different types of fatty acids. These are just, this is a small sampling mm -hmm. of some of the fatty acids that you would actually see attached to carboxylic acid, uh, uh, sorry, attached to the phospholipid uh, head groups. And then depending upon the chain length, if you have very long, longer chains that are saturated, mm -hmm. you will get a a bilayer that, that's viscous, almost like a solid. Right. And if you have shorter chains or kinks in the chain because of double bonds, you'll get, again, a more fluid membrane. Uh, so the physical state of the membrane is actually determined by the composition. And so that's these right. researchers were asking the question, really what role do, do the lipid components play in passive diffusion? And to their surprise, they discovered that actually you can regulate the, the degree uh, of diffusion of these low molecular weight materials across cell membranes by simply modifying the lipid composition, mm -hmm. particularly the, 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 uh, the composition of the fatty acid chains. Okay. So depending on the, the length or the degree of saturation, and which also not only determines the liquid state of the membrane, but also determines the thickness of the membrane, you can actually regulate and fine-tune uh, passive diffusion. And so they actually... So, so you can, by introducing certain types of fatty acids in, you can change the composition of the membrane. Right. So, so the membrane incorporates, some sense, whatever's in the environment. Right. Oh, really? Okay, that's pretty fascinating. Right. And, th and then that has implications for the, the degree and the rate of passive diffusion. Right. And, and so, for example, they show that in yeast cells, the plasma membrane has a very low rate of passive diffusion because of its lipid composition. Mm -hmm. But things like the membranes associated with organelles, like the endoplasmic reticulum, have a very uh, facile mm -hmm. uh, uh, passive diffusion where things move across the membrane very easily. Right. Or the the cell, the plasma membrane of E. coli, is much more amenable to passive diffusion than the plasma membrane of yeast. Mm -hmm. And so this is showing that in real life, 
this insight actually uh, translates to observable right. data and it means that you now have a mechanism of regulating passive diffusion in 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 kind of synthetic biology biotechnology applications where you could maybe genetically engineer a bacteria to produce certain compounds but then also genetically engineer it so that its lipid composition in the membrane is conducive to a high rate of passive diffusion of the of the product that you're producing with mm -hmm. the bacteria so very important implications now you know from an apologetic standpoint what really to me is is significant about this work is number one it, it's showing us just how absolutely complex the cell membrane is right right uh, and, er and and I don't everybody realized that the cell membrane was complex but what it's showing us is that there's a rationale to that complexity mm -hmm. that it that it it's that when I was in graduate school, the, the view of the cell membrane was that this was just something that was the outworking of, of evolutionary processes, that as evolution, you know, underwent, or as organisms underwent evolution, mm -hmm. you know, uh, there were just these metabolic pathways that were introduced that produced different types of phospholipids with different types of chain links, mm -hmm. and that the composition of the membrane was just a haphazard representation of what an, an, mm -hmm. an unguided, historically contingent evolutionary process produced, that there wasn't any rationale for why the membrane was that way. Right. People just kind of cataloged what the composition was. Uh, and, and that view is, has largely been supplanted by this idea that Every aspect of the compositional diversity of cell membranes has functional consequences. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't talk about it here, but right. the, the head groups, the composition of the head groups has very important uh, functional significance in terms of uh, how the membrane operates. Uh, we just showed that the, the chain length is really very critical mm -hmm. for something like passive diffusion. And so it, it's showing us that there's a rationale to the structure of cell membranes that far that that far outstrips what anybody originally would have thought, which you know what what I find interesting too in your discussion there, um, you know, just kind of remembering back to my chemistry, you know, talking about saturated and unsaturated uh, bonds that uh, you know carbon is the backbone of life, right. um, and yeah, I know there are questions out there of could we find other molecules that would do and one of one of the features of carbon that allows it is that uh where most molecules can form one or two or maybe three bonds carbon can form four right and so when you're talking about that saturated unsaturated that is related to double bonding and triple bonding in there right when you were showing that diagram of the shape of the hydrocarbon layers um, that single bonding is what gives you the pretty linear part, where you've right. got the double and triple bonding is what gives the kinking. So it pl the carbon plays directly, if, mm -hmm. I, if I understand it cor correctly, yep. carbon plays directly into this ability to change the permeability of the membrane. Yes, exactly. So if you're going to go with some other element or some other backbone, not only do you have to be able to make long, car long chains, but you have to make long chains with different geometries, which again, carbon just naturally does. I, I, I just that, that's yeah. kind of mind well, blowing to think about it. And, and the closest analog to carbon would be silicon, right? And silicon can't form double and triple bonds. Oh, really? I or, did not or know that. Or it's very, or they're very rare. Right. Let's say, so it's 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 something that carbon does endemically, right? Whereas other elements, it, that's just not an option. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, the, the one that I'd heard, seen kind of is like a nitrogen phosphorus background where, or right. backbone where it kind of alternates on there. But still, yeah. you still don't have this, I can make double, triple bonds right. the way carbon does. Yes, so. exactly. Yeah. 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 But so, so yeah. So, I mean, in a sense, what you're speaking about is really uh, even a deeper recognition that, that there's a rationale mm-hmm. That undergirds the composition of life, right? And that rationale includes now the composition of cell membranes. And when you start talking about there's a rationale for why things are that way, <laughs> that begins to suggest design, right? And it, it moves you away from it being just an outworking of a historically contingent evolutionary process, because that kind of a process, mm-hmm. there's not a rationale for why things are this way. They are just this way because this is what evolution right, stumbled right. upon. And, and so it's saying that the cell membrane doesn't fit that that the nature of the cell membrane doesn't fit that particular outworking or of of, a, of an evolutionary process. There's something mm-hmm. that's dictating that the cell membrane is the way it is. Again, and there's there's a set of principles that that are right. that are defining that rationale. But it also is pointing out that the cell membrane is compositionally fine tuned. Mm-hmm. It has a very precise composition right. <laughs> that, that if you vary it will have consequences for the functionality of the cell membrane and the capacity of that organism to survive. And, and so fine-tuning, again, is, 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 is evidence of design. So this is a, a study that, that has very significant importance for biotechnology, mm-hmm. but it also, I think, uh, again, highlights the fact that cell membranes really do reflect – uh, features of, of a system that's intelligently designed right. in terms of the, there's a rationale that undergirds it in terms of the fact that it's compositionally fine-tuned. You know, it, it just struck me that, uh, you know, we, I know we haven't done too many of these star cells and gods, but, you know, we talked about one of the ones I talked about was Kinesin 1 and how it is actually looks like it's designed to work inside the cell. You know, mm-hmm. la- previous episode we were talking about the genetic code and these the unmapped region and how it shows evidence of. There's a lot of that out there. Right. Um, you know, the, this idea that if you look and say, "Hey, that doesn't seem to make sense. It's poorly designed." That's probably a good area to go look and say, "There's something I'm not understanding right. here. There's a deeper rationale for why right. this is." So, yeah. All right, Jeff. Well, thanks, Fuzz. I appreciate that discussion. Uh, I, I got to say, I love, you know, th- this is technical and heady and stuff, but it's like there's when biology seems to be just this place where as we're getting in and exploring and plumbing, there's just so much stuff coming out. It's like, wow, that's just really fascinating. And it allows me to use some of the chemistry I took when mm-hmm. I was in high school and college. So I like that, too. <laughs> So I'm going I'm to switch over to uh, a little bit more high-energy stuff, and this is uh, talking about W and Z bosons, or W bosons particularly. And uh, yeah, I just kind of wanted to spend a little bit of time giving the background of why this is important, because uh, you know we look out at our universe, and it's this very complex, diverse uh, environment, if you will, but... Uh, 
in in one way, physics has made our universe very simple, uh, that there are a relatively small number of particles in our universe. There's a relatively small, and, and those particles determine how the fundamental forces interact. And so there's there's really like 26 particles. You got electrons and pro, or electrons, muons and tauons, and then there are neutrinos. Uh, you've got some flavors of quarks. You've got some bosons like photons and W and Z bosons, which we didn't even know about. Um, and uh, there's this standard model of particle physics. And what is impressive about the standard model of particle physics is that virtually every test we've thrown at it, it stands up with flying colors. I mean, it explains mm -hmm. why protons behave the way they do, because protons are not fundamental particles. They're made up of these quarks. It explains why atoms work. It explains all of the various fundamental, or all of these particles that get generated in our uh, particle accelerators. Um, there, there's virtually nothing that it doesn't explain that it can touch on. Um, yet as we look at this universe, there are things that we know exist that don't fit into the standard model. So for example, we've got abundant evidence that there's dark matter out there. Well, you go look at the standard model of particles or the particles in the standard model, and there's 26, 27 of them. And none of them are a suitable dark matter candidate. So it seems like, okay, there's physics out there beyond the standard model as, successive as, as successful as the standard model is. Well, one of the insights that gives us, or one of the, the dis set of discoveries that happen that gives us insight that there's something beyond the standard model mm. is that, uh, you know, if you go back 100 years ago, well, maybe 75 years ago, we've got four fundamental forces. You've got gravity, You've got the electromagnetic force, you've got the weak nuclear force, and you've got the strong nuclear force. And they all operate on different things. Electromagnetism operates on charge. Uh, gravity operates on mass. Uh, you know, the weak nuclear force operates on color. Uh, you know, it's this kind of cool thing that physicists come to describe the particles that don't. And then, then you've got the weak nuclear interaction, which is just hard to describe. But one of the genius insights was recognizing that these are not really fundamental forces, that they are actually low energy manifestations of a more fundamental force. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you might think, okay, gravity and electromagnetism, because they're both long range, operate on charge and mass, that those would be easy to figure out how to, to unify. Those tend out to be the two hardest. But as people were looking, they realized, hey, the electromagnetic and the weak nuclear force those we can unify because there's this symmetry when the universe was in a higher energy state, and that symmetry made those look the same. And only as the universe cooled did that symmetry break, and now we see these two different mm -hmm. things. Well, uh, so there's, uh, in doing that work, there were some theoretical calculations of how does that symmetry work. And what that meant is that the photon, which is this zero mass particle, uh, should have these other particles that were also zero ma or had no mass, but when the symmetry broke, these things now have higher mass, and mm -hmm. the photon now mediates the electromagnetic force, and these other things that uh, acquired a higher mass now have they they mediate the electroweak or the, the the weak nuclear force. And so there were two or three, theor or, well, there were three, two theoretical papers that were describing this symmetry breaking that were awarded the Nobel Prize for their work. There were two uh, big discoveries of the W and Z bosons, which are the names for these other particles, uh, that were awarded the Nobel Prize for their discovery. And then the fifth one was that symmetry breaking 
the Higgs, Higgs mechanism plays into that. So the Higgs boson was the fifth of these uh, Nobel-winning discoveries that show how the standard model of particle physics has this symmetry built into it that breaks, that we see the photon that mediates the electromagnetic force and these W and Z bosons that mediate the, the weak force are actually one and the same. And, and it gives us this just great picture of how the universe starts from Big Bang, hot, dense state, cools down, and we get this very diverse universe, which is critical for life existing, mm -hmm. how it exists. So all that background to say, all right, we have this very powerful Big Bang cosmology that's coupled with the uh, uh, standard model of particle physics that incorporates all of these quantum effects and the, the, the three of these fundamental forces, and yet we can't explain dark matter. And so there's something beyond the standard model. And the question then is, okay, we want to get to where we explain that. What sort of experimental evidence would give us guide of how do we find that physics beyond the standard model? Well, it turns out one of the ways to do that, uh, we talked a couple weeks ago or a few episodes ago with Dr. Mike Strauss of looking for the Higgs boson and measuring the Higgs boson mass and other multiples. That's one avenue mm -hmm. to pursue for looking for physics beyond the standard model. Well, another way to do that is once you found the top quark and the bottom quark and all the other quarks and weighed, made, or measured their masses, found the Higgs boson, measured its mass, now you can make very precise predictions and com or precise comparisons between the expectation of the mass of the W boson mm -hmm. and what you actually measure it to be. And so you go through and you do all these theoretical calculations, and you can get those calculations accurate down to about 0.01 percent. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that's you know about four places of the decimal that you can make these very precise calculations. Now the challenge is on the the, the experimentalists go out and measure it as as tightly as you can to see can you get a measurement that's that good. And what, what the paper that I'm talking about here is uh, used by the, the CDF detector at uh, Fermilab, um, the Tevatron. And they ran for the, the, the Tevatron run ran from 2002 to 2011, collected lots of data, but they collected uh, over 4 million W bosons that they could now use to analyze and measure the mass. And there's, uh, you know, there's this very long paper that goes through all the different systematic effects you have to worry about. It's a very complicated uh, analysis. But after going through all of that, they finally came out with a new measurement for a more, a more precise, more sensitive, uh, more significant measurement of the W boson. Um, and now they can compare that, which has a similar sort of precision that the calculations from the standard model have. And so if you go to the, go to the first slide, so kind of what's at, what's at stake here is that, uh, you know, the standard model is the expectation of the uh, mass of the W boson, which is, again, it's about 100 times more massive than a proton. So this is a pretty massive particle. Um, and then there's uh, measurements from LEP2, Tevatron, from when it ran earlier. They have a whole lot more data, a lot more sensitivity. And then what you see now is that uh, the measurement from the CDF is now well above the expectation from the standard model. And it's about seven sigma away, which is, you know, in, in 
particle physics speak, that's a very significant deviation between what the standard model calculations say it should be and what the Tevatron is measuring the mass mm. to actually be. And so this is uh, something that may be giving us insight into what is that physics beyond the standard model. And so you see on the right there, you know, uh, you know, if you have heavy supersymmetry, you expect the mass to be lower. If you have light supersymmetry, you expect the mass to be higher. This says maybe this is giving us, this may be giving us direction as to fruitful avenues to go pursue. What kind of supersymmetry might explain uh, this 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 measurement, but supersymmetry is one very natural way to get a dark matter particle because mm -hmm. what supersymmetry basically says is that for all the zoo of particles that we see, every one of those particles um, that's a fermion has a corresponding boson, and every boson has a corresponding fermion. They're supersymmetric, and there was some symmetry early in the universe that broke, and all of the particles we see have the mass they do, but there's these supersymmetric particles which were much more massive. But the way it works out, though, is that all of those particles would decay down to the lightest supersymmetric particle, and that lightest supersymmetric particle is a great dark matter candidate. And so that's, you know, mm -hmm. I'm working on a, a balloon experiment called GAPS, which is looking for one of those supersymmetric or, you know, that, that sort of wimp or that sort of dark matter. And so uh, this is, you know, connection between how do we find dark matter and how do we move beyond the standard model of particle physics. And a, and a couple of things that just stand out to me in this discussion, if you go on to the next slide. So this is a measurement of what the W boson mass measurements are. And there you see that standard model, and it's got a very narrow uh, error bar on it. It, it. We can calculate it again, like I said, to 0.01%. Well, if you notice, the width of this most recent measurement is similar to that 0.01%, right. which, you know, we're saying it's 80,433, which plus or minus nine. Uh, you know, that's... That's a phenomenal amount of precision. The fact that we can make, one, that we can make measurements with that precision is remarkable because this particle lives for a very short period of time, fractions of a second, mm -hmm. um, so that we can make that many and characterize them and get this sort of, this sort of precision of a measurement says something about the ingenuity and tenacity and determination and perseverance of scientists. The fact that we now can say, or, you know, assuming this measurement stands up and there's going to be lots of tests, you know, there's other detectors that are going to try and validate this experiment or this, this result. But if it stands up, what it now says is that because we can make such precise measurements of what the mass is, we can make very precise calculations of what we expect the mass to be. Only by getting down to that 0.01% precision can we now be able to say, yeah, you know what, these things are actually different, and that difference gives us insight as to where to go. Mm -hmm. You know, you were talking about a rationality right. behind the way cell membranes are structured together. Without this level of mathematical precision, or rather I would say this level of mathematical precision says there's some sort of rationality, consistent, reliable mechanism that holds the universe together mm -hmm. so that we can make these sorts of precise measurements. So I don't know what exactly we're going to get to in the beyond the standard model particle physics or physics is going to be. I find it fascinating that we're in a place where we can start doing that. Mm -hmm. But just the consistency and coherence of this whole discussion really does point to there being a mind behind it. And I find that to be pretty strong evidence yeah. that points towards a creator. You know, when, when I contemplate what's ha what happens 
in particle physics, in other areas of physics. It's just remarkable to think that the, a the universe is intelligible, mm-hmm. and b that that there's a mathematical way to characterize the universe, and there's a mathematical precision to the universe. That's right. fascinating to me. It, it really is, and uh, I mean, you know, just to give you a sense of the mathematical precision we're probing here. That, uh, you know, the CDF, most of these detectors are typically like three-story buildings. You know, they're, they're large detectors. Well, to get the precision to make this measurement, they had to align these detectors to within about the, the width of a human hair. Oh, wow. You know, so think about that. You know, three-story detector, and every component in there is aligned to within a human hair. And... You know, how they do it is have cosmic rays go through the detector, and that allows them to make the alignment. I mean, it's like the ingenuity that we exhibit to be able to make these measurements is reflective of the creator who made the universe and allows us to discover it. I mean, it, yeah. that that way of describing it provides this incredibly coherent picture of looking right. at the universe. And I just find, again, I will say it again, I think that I find that strong evidence pointing towards the God of the Bible being the author and creator of the universe. Yeah. So. Well, thanks, Fuzz. I appreciate our, our discussion today. It's been fun talking about cell membrane transport and uh, W bosons. And uh, you want to thank you for joining us today on Stars, Cells, and God. And uh, hope you found the conversation on uh, cell membranes and W boson helpful and encouraging. You know, I want you to join the conversation below. Click down in the comments. Tell us your comments. We want to hear what you have to say. If you found it insightful, please share it with someone else who might be interested. And remember to like the video, subscribe for more content. Again, we release Star Cells and God each Thursday. They're available for here free and on YouTube on your favorite podcast app. And make sure to follow us on social media, RTB Official, for other exciting projects. Once again, thank you for watching. And remember, the more we know about science, the more we have reasons to believe.